we have a really great guest coming on today. I'm actually really excited. I think this has been a long time coming because I, I have been creeping this doctor's page for quite <laughs> some time now. And now, and he said, yes. So it, it feels like yes to the dress, but it's not. It's like yes to the science. Let's talk about this wildness going on. Sarah, please introduce our guest today. Today, we have Dr. Zane Changla. He is an infectious diseases physician and medical director of infection control at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and an associate professor of medicine at McMaster University. Throughout the pandemic, Dr. Changla has focused on local, provincial, and national policy, participated in clinical trials, helped with outbreak management and public outreach, and has been part of local and national media. Dr. Chagla has also participated in helping with COVID responses and education in Central Afghanistan and Nepal. Welcome, Zane. We're so glad to have you here today. Uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure. So we were kind of just wondering to start out, if you could tell us why you chose infectious diseases as a specialty and what has been the most challenging aspect of this specialty? Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting. I uh, I always had a little bit of a leaning to it. My parents are slightly medical. My mom is a nurse that actually did infection control. She actually oh, cool. did her cool. nursing. <laughs> she actually did her nursing when I was in high school, which is crazy. But anyways, uh, she has a, a, a story of just reeducating herself and then finding infection control. And, uh, and so, yeah, when I got into med school and, and residency, it was something on the list. And, and But there were a lot of other things. And a lot of people make residency choice. So I did internal medicine because I was not very differentiated. I knew I, I probably wasn't going to be uh, surgical and, and um, really like the cognitive part of medicine. It was interesting. You know, you just cross things off the list and you kind of figure out, you know, is this the kind of patient I want to see every day? Is this the kind of work I want to do every day? Uh, and ID was really cool because it combined a lot of things that I couldn't find anywhere else. So it's a very clinical specialty. You know, you have to see patients from all over the hospital, all, you know, every body system. So you have to be pretty good at doing, being, you know, a general medicine person. There's a huge global element, which has always been a part of my career. And there's a really cool association with the lab. And, uh, and you know, it's mm -hmm. one of the few training programs where you actually spend a decent amount of time in the lab. And it really informs how you practice. And so, you know, again, it, it's kind of a nice niche of that. You can do stuff like infection control when you're dealing with hospital policy and planning. You can do stuff like stewardship, or, which is talking about kind of the use of antibiotics and again, a lot of behavioral change and that type of thing. And there's a lot of these little offshoots that, that make it really interesting. So it's a cool specialty. And I think, again, there's lots of you know, of a hundred different ID doctors, there's a hundred different ways they practice and a hundred different interests they have. And so it's one of these ones where there's continuous personal growth. And, and again, you know, lots of linkages to different people across different sectors. And what do you find challenging? Because as the co-lead of infection control at my organization, I found that it wasn't until the pandemic hit that people actually started paying attention to guidelines and policies. And it's not just me nagging you again to wash your hands. This actually has implications. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, the hardest part, right? You know, especially with infection control, there's a lot of behavioral change and behavioral science. And there's a lot of nuance in, in how it's organized. I mean, I think our, our infection control team, our managers and our uh, 
IPAC practitioners are really unique in the sense that they're practiced with boots on the ground, right? They, you know, they may not be perfect. They may not get everything right off the bat, but they're there on the board with people. They're talking to people. They, you know, they don't want to be in the office. They want to be educators. They want to be, you know, leaders. They want to be mentors. They want to be collaborators. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, again, that's that's one of the hardest pieces is bridging that gap, right? You know, there's a lot of policy, but putting it in action, being pragmatic, being realistic, but also being trusted is a is a huge piece. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's that was one of the learning lessons, especially going into, you know, more of a, a leadership role there. And, you know, I, I think, again, it's it's one of these professions where it's incredibly cognitive. You can agonize over patients for, for such a long time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one thing to be extremely detailed, but it's another to be, you know, competent enough to see a lot of patients quickly. And, you know, bridging that gap is something a lot of our trainees deal with. And, and it, you know, it really does fall at different people. It's, it's quite a challenge in that sense. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's kind of funny that um, we're having this talk today and we're talking a little bit about your specialty and the work that you did, because I think that if I think back to like my nursing career, maybe Sarah can kind of chime this chime in too. When we think about infection control, when we used to think about infection control, we used to kind of think about like the infection control Nazis. Like here, these guys come with their like their their meter sticks in terms of our compliance, and not really truly understanding how important and the integral role that infections uh, infection sizes, infectious diseases played in our organization. And man, I have to say, like I have so much more respect for you guys than I ever had before. And maybe it's because even I had this kind of service level appreciation because, you know, we all knew when you guys were coming. <laughs> so we'd be, you know, doing our nursing thing. And then we just see yeah. that person with the clipboard. We're like, infectious control. <laughs> we know infectious <laughs> diseases are here. And, you know, our compliances would go up. But, you know, one of, one of the things I'd like to say is just, you know, everybody out there, all of the ID docs doing this really hard work and bringing some of this uh, science to for us for us to understand like I really really appreciate it and it, it's a it's a great team profession right and again like it's it's just that right audit is the one piece I think that they're they're kind of out there and everyone sees right. but there's so much in the background and again really good infection infection control practitioners you know are are the ones that are there and they're the ones that are partners they're not there to do audits but they're there to be that that mentor and that email or that call that's a you know five seconds away. And I think a lot of infection control practitioners have stepped up in this last uh, two years and, and really been those partners to the system rather than kind of that that relationship. I think everyone always had, even as a med student, I think I had, uh, you know, of, 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 you know, making sure that you're not there when they're auditing you in that sense. <laughs> right, right, right. Talking about the last two years and really kind of just digging back into, you know, what has elapsed over this time. And I think what people probably want to hear from you on our podcast is really, we know that vaccine inequity has led to some of the most recent crisis that we're seeing, Omicron. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of this, the global nature of the pandemic and our interconnectedness and how we can, you know, combat this latest crisis that we're facing? It's, it's actually really concerning for a lot of folks. When the vaccines were released and, and we had this incredible surge of great news in about a year ago now, in November and December of 2021 or 2020, you know, there was a lot of optimism. There's a lot of enthusiasm, but a lot of people were sitting there saying, well, what is this going to do? How is this going to be distributed? Right. And you saw the three big manufacturers and uh, Moderna and Pfizer and AstraZeneca and AstraZeneca really had the only model there. 
that was, you know, using a global equitable approach where patents would be dropped, where third party providers could then, you know, create vaccine, where storage was a whole lot easier. Uh, and really the other two where there were so many barriers put in the way. And, you know, again, in Canada, we saw this right away, right? Like, uh, right. we didn't get access to our, our great supply of vaccines in, in January and February and, and things mm-hmm. slowed down. And so we felt that. You can imagine there are places on this earth with zero manufacturer vaccine that are completely reliant on third-party markets to fill their orders. Um, you know, the, the World Health Organization and and, uh, and Gavi, which is the, the global alliance on vaccines, um, you know, had set up the COVAX network, which was, uh, you know, supposed to be almost a a way for all networks to to uh, to access vaccines. So all you know, rich and poor countries were supposed to put themselves in. You know, it was supposed to not only be a way so that everyone could equitably access vaccines, but it was an insurance policy in case one of the vaccine formulas didn't work, that everyone still had access to a useful uh, vaccine that that came through. What we saw with COVAX, though, is a lot of countries entered, a lot of countries also made third-party contracts. And, you know, again, there was that initial inequity in, in all of it, where private deals that were funding most of the vaccine supply and COVAX that was left aside. And so the proof is in the pudding. In December, of you know, last day of this year, there was 8% of low-income countries that had received a first dose of vaccine. 8% of people wow. in low-income countries. 25% of healthcare workers in Africa. And, you know, these, yeah. these are numbers a year after a mass vaccine campaign, not, not a few days, a year after a mass vaccine campaign, where, you know, we're starting to have discussions now in some places in the world about fourth doses of vaccine. And, you know, we yeah. have not addressed first doses of vaccine for a good chunk of the global population. And a lot of people will talk about the damage done. Well, you know, these are fragile healthcare systems. They're people living in poverty. They're not people that can physically distance and live in a well-ventilated right. space and wear a well-fitted mask and stay home and and uh, and limit their contacts because they're they're living in poverty. They can't necessarily, you know, adhere to the non-pharmaceutical interventions that we've seen over the last couple of years. But there is incredible promise in a vaccine for them because it continues to use their immune system. They're really the big defense against this. The only defense we've left a lot of the world with. Uh, And Omicron was a great example, right? You know, you had a region of the world with very low vaccine rates, not South Africa, but somewhere probably in the sub-Saharan African continent that had a variation that led to, you know, breakthrough, particularly of natural immunity, which was really what shielded these populations is just immunity through death and, and disability. And, uh, and, you know, again, we saw health systems challenged, we saw a variant that spread across the world very quickly, and we saw our own personal effects of this, right? So, you know, there are mm-hmm. incredible needs for vaccine equity for the sake of, you know, limiting poverty to, to uh, health systems, to uh, supporting, you know, maternal and child care and all the things that have been delayed over the last two years that, that the, the low-income world is, has really depended on. But yeah, there's, there's huge selfish reasons for considering vaccine equity and the variation of this virus, especially in areas of the world that only have natural immunity, where people may not have access to health systems, you know, is going to come and, and bite us. And then again, Omicron went from something we heard about on November 25th to causing incredible uh, changes in our world less than a month later. And, and again, we have to be cognizant of how quickly, uh, you know, a global change can really ripple onto everyone's soil. 
it's really great that you brought up the inequities because I think about in some of the countries in Africa, they don't even have clean drinking water. So never mind practicing hand hygiene or all of the other things that you talked about. And I think in the beginning, the argument was, well, the average age in Africa is younger, and so then it won't affect them. And we were obviously very wrong with that. And then about this time last year, Amy and I were talking about how vaccines were going to be the light at the end of the tunnel. And I didn't personally anticipate so much resistance to the vaccinations. And now we're in a place where it's almost 90% vaccinated, right? And now we're seeing breakthrough and all these other issues. And again, we're talking about the uh, usage of N95 masks because there's been this great debate since the beginning about whether COVID is airborne or not. We talk a lot about the precautionary principle and how you should just follow that, you know, assume the worst until you know better. And now we're moving to healthcare providers using N95 masks in suspected cases of COVID, but not for all interactions. And why do you think scientists and healthcare providers can't agree on how um, COVID is spread? after two years yeah look you know there were there were old models uh and old evidence around this there was you know models from other respiratory infections uh and you know the the data around them was not great and and you know few randomized clinical trials lots of bias within those trials in terms of what was going on in the community at the time versus healthcare. Even now, it's hard because, again, these are these are diseases that people can catch in, in hospitals and in their community and trying to tease that out. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, you, it, was, it was operating in a, a level where there wasn't evidence. It was, you know, using old data and old respiratory infections to kind of fuel new data. There's been a lot of evolution across every every subsector and, and every specialty, but you know, again, it, it really does come to this adaptation, right? And uh, I think we're learning more and more about the mechanisms. And again, the variants change everything: you know, the viral load, the infectivity, the the level of disease, the level that you know binding to it uh, receptors, and you know, relative importance of certain transmission routes changes you know on a dime when we see some of these variants come through. So. You know, it is evolving science, and, and, and you know, it's been a bit messy out there. I, I will agree, but I think again, we we can you know all recognize that masking and, and a well-fitted mask is probably better than no mask whatsoever. It's you know what mm-hmm. what is optimal and what scenario is it optimal, uh, and you know again, recognizing that that this is changing and, and it's a moving target in in many different respects as this virus changes. Yeah, I mean, this this almost kind of brings it back to that whole equity conversation. I kind of actually wanted to to maybe revisit that because, you know, when we talk about, you know, these continents and these countries that didn't have access, we actually had a, a guest previously. We had Jason Nickerson on from uh, Doctors Without Borders kind of talking about, you know, there were countries. So like Canada and the U.S., they were buying multiple, multiple uh, vaccines where, you know, some of these places didn't actually have the chance to even bid to buy mm-hmm. uh, vaccines. And then, you know, you had mentioned we're looking at fourth, fifth doses and and these kind of things. But it's just like one of the things I feel that's the biggest gaping hole is that we aren't looking out for one another. Like we mm-hmm. already know that this is something that like particularly with Omicron, that it was due to vaccine inequity that we saw this this rise of this new variant. But like now we're talking like I know Sarah had mentioned about, you know, like we might be looking at different precautions. The science is always changing. But how do we really as partners, as global partners, 
actually deal with this va- not even just the vaccine inequity but the fact that we're not we're not look we're we're in this i feel like we're in this canadian u.s bubble mm-hmm. everything surrounds and circles us and then all of a sudden there's a problem and we're like oh you know it's it's africa and then there's anti-black racism and it's like oh they actually were the ones that founded the fact that there was this variant how do we as you know scientists nurses educators physicians start looking at these inequitable practices and kind of turn them around because I feel that that's a another huge blind spot that we have in our healthcare system. This has been such a difficult pandemic, right? Because everyone has thought locally, right? You know, yes, I think everyone thinks about can they have their kids in school? You know, what's happening to my friends and colleagues? What's happening at our local hospitals? And so, you know, you can get lost in that quite a bit in the in the context of all of it, your local news and, and its reporting, right? I think we have to just say, you know, we're connected. We're so connected globally, right? This pandemic was a global pandemic. It started in one place in the world and it was, you know, a flight over in another place in the world. Yeah. We, you know, when we go back to what happened in, in China and, and Italy and uh, in the first you know wave, we were fixated on those places. Well, you know, yeah. COVID came in through the United States and Europe. It didn't come in through China and, and Italy and Iran. We had good evidence, actually, Quebec and Ontario. It was repeated introductions from the United States, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't consider what's happening in the rest of the world, yeah, I mean, we, we're, we're a connected community, we're globalized, we travel families in many different places of the world. And so uh, there is an incredible global importance to making sure that we, we protect each other, right? And the first and foremost is vaccines. And I, I will say of every medical intervention there, you know, vaccines are number one on the list. They work yeah. all the time. They induce immunity. They are, you know, essential for every human being to access. It may not be perfect. They may not be the best vaccines. They may be the hardest vaccines to administer. But again, you know, they, they have to be foremost on the list. And and even if, you know, we get breakthroughs or that type of thing, to simply eliminate human suffering across the world, the suffering that we've had to deal with is, as, you know, Ontarians and Canadians, We've seen people die. We've seen people inequitably die. You can imagine in places in the world uh, that went through, you know, waves like in India with Delta, you know, unfortunately, even South Africa with this Omicron wave, you know, yeah. there there was, you know, the, the poor and, and the underprivileged that bore the brunt of it. And this is where it starts first and foremost, right? You know, our, our solutions have to be global vaccines, number one, and then, you know, support for sustainable approaches to vaccination, not simply donation-based methods, as we know that, that, you know, the world unfortunately chooses their own populations first as compared to to the global uh, solutions. Reaching back out to COVAX as a a long-term sustainable strategy, empowering governments to fight misinformation locally, and, you know, long-term really thinking this is not likely going to be the last pandemic. So building vaccine competency in in many places in the world such that you know there is no choice that people have the ability to produce vaccine locally so they can distribute vaccine locally and yep, not have to rely one. on the rest of the world through a crisis so you know many of these things are coming out now and i think there is progress going in the right direction but you know the fact that we're sitting still sitting at eight percent uh, and, uh, and you know, uh, even in the COVAX donations, there's been doses that have had need to be destroyed for the sake of being nearly at expiry and, and not giving health systems the ability to scale up and deal with things. It's been tough. And, and again, there is vaccine hesitancy in the world. I 100% agree with, you know, many countries having vaccine hesitancy. But it starts with supply, right? Governments can make 
campaigns to empower people to get vaccinated, to make local champions for vaccines. But it's hard to do when you can't offer them a vaccine at the end of it. And, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and you know, that innovation starts with supply, number one, first and foremost. You know, it's very interesting that you said that because a story just popped into my mind where my cousin, my cousin lives in Jamaica. And actually, he re- I remember him saying to me, he's like, I am not going to get the AZ. You guys don't want to take the AZ out there. So you give it to us poor 100%. countries. And then he's like, he didn't get his vaccine until like maybe a month ago where he ended up getting he ended up getting Pfizer. They have th- those thoughts, too, where they're out there and they're just like, hey, you know, why are you giving us stuff that you guys won't use yourselves? Right. And, and I think those are valid questions. And that also fuels, you know, some of those apprehensions and feelings around the vaccine hesitancy and, you know, mm-hmm. just, you know, that mistrust of the medical system. In terms of some of the things that we're seeing, because you, you did talk that, you know, vaccines they are the light at the end of the tunnel. We ha- There's a lot of great science, but there's also some really great advances in therapeutics. And we read a little bit of your work. So maybe you could talk about some of the advances in therapeutics from here on out and talk about like what you've seen. So, you know, there's been a lot of work on therapeutics at the inpatient angle. This is a very weird disease where the outpatient and the inpatient angle are very different. As an inpatient, what really fuels people to end up in hospital, going to the ICU on a ventilator is inflammation, is uncontrolled inflammation and and a bit of thrombosis too as well. And so, you know, many of the therapies at that end were the early therapies that came out, but they were really not anti-infectives. Remdesivir was the first drug that got trialed that had a little bit of effect at an inpatient level to reduce people who are kind of oxygenated from ending up in the ICU or in shortening their length of stay a little bit. But other than that, antivirals didn't really seem to do much when people ended up in hospital. And, you know, things like steroids, uh, anti-inflammatories like uh, tocilizumab, they were really targeted towards the hospitalization piece to shut down that aberrant inflammation that led to lung injury and many of the other complications that we saw in the hospital. But there's always been this overlying belief that if you can intervene with to people early, you likely will prevent things from progressing, right? And we know this from right. other viral infections. So if you get influenza, getting Tamiflu early likely reduces your symptomatology and, and your severity. We know we can turn off influenza outbreaks in nursing homes by starting people on Tamiflu early. For, you know, people who get, you know, cold sores or, or genital herpes, you know, taking a, a, an early dose of, of antivirals can often make things settle down a lot faster and right, make right. people's symptoms better. So there, there's always been this golden window of antivirals. Uh, and so, you know, there's been a lot of products that have come to the market. Old drugs like inhaled steroids and, and a drug called fluvoxamine, which is an anti-inflammatory, but also an antidepressive drug, you know, certainly can help at that early level to tamp down inflammation, but then we have antivirals like uh, molinipavir and um, Paxlovid, which are which are antivirals at different parts of the viral replication cycle. And then we have monoclonal antibodies, which are antibodies synthetic to COVID-19 from different parts of the spike protein or receptor binding domain of the virus. We're given early again, similar to what we have with passive antibody therapy for other diseases, basically trigger off the immune response, help with viral clearance, And in good studies, many of these drugs, when given to the right high-risk patients, can significantly alter a patient's prognosis and take high-risk patients, basically giving them a prognosis of a low-risk patient in that sense. And so there's incredible advances here. The monoclonal antibodies have been in Canada now for about six months. They haven't really been expanded as much as we would like. But, you know, there's a lot of promise here to say as long as we can find our high-risk patients, 
even if they get COVID through a vaccine where some of them will, we can still likely capture them uh, and, and intervene and make sure that they have a very benign uh, COVID-19 diagnosis without ending up in hospital or, or needing ventilation or, or some of the other complications in that sense. Who are the high-risk patients that you'd say? Yeah, I mean, I think age is, is probably the biggest risk factor, and, and it's been shown study after study. So those over the age of 70, even those over the age of 60 who are unvaccinated likely have a higher risk. Um, but but certainly, you know, over the age of 70, all cause is still vaccine or unvaccinated is, is a higher risk group. People who are immunocompromised for the definition A, that they just won't make a good immune response to COVID, but B, uh, that they probably wouldn't make a great immune response to the vaccines either who are really going into the infection naive. And then people with certain medical conditions, uh, obesity we see as a large risk factor for hospitalization amongst individuals, particularly again, unvaccinated, you know, and, and other things like chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease, chronic lung disease, particularly COPD, uh, heart failure, pregnancy, you know, there are certain other risk groups that are out there. And again, likely favoring more of the unvaccinated cohort because, you know, vaccines in those groups actually work really, really well to reduce their risk significantly, even if they do have a breakthrough infection. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One more, one more question just for, just for our mm-hmm. listeners, because, you know, we do have an eclectic group, monoclonal antibodies. So I would say that some of our listeners, yes, will know. And some of our listeners might have mm-hmm. only heard it on Joe Rogan's podcast. So maybe <laughs> what you can do, because like I would I wish I could play the family guy video that describes it, but maybe you can give a better description in terms of how it actually works. Cause I think there there is some myths out there and we want to yeah. dispel them. We want to crush those out. How does that treatment actually work and what does it actually do? And again, it's crazy because there is this counterculture that that's ongoing about certain therapeutics. Yep, and again, yep, yeah. a lot of it is really, really promising and works really well. Uh, but it kind of gets mixed up in all of that. So, right. you know, monoclonal antibodies. So antibodies are what we make to COVID-19 when we get naturally infected. They're what they make after a vaccine. We make polyclonal antibodies. So we make a wide variety of different antibodies when we're infected or vaccinated. These are single antibodies or single complexes of antibodies that are made to, to COVID-19. And so the companies uh, that make these drugs looked at COVID-19, they said, okay, what antibodies bind really well to the spike protein and the receptor proteins? And what seemed to neutralize the virus really well in lab studies? And then they basically go to the lab, they synthesize them in huge quantities, and again, put them in an intravenous or, or an intramuscular subcutaneous infusion to give to a patient. And really, when you get these antibodies, they bind to the virus like your normal antibodies would. They prevent the virus entering cells. They trigger the immune system to clear the virus out. It really is kind of a shortcut to immunity, to what your body would do. We've done right. this for other infectious diseases, like mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, if you were to get a, a rabies exposure, you would get antibodies to rabies as part of your uh, therapeutic. And so it's very similar to that, is, is really just that shortcut to immunity to clear the virus out faster and let people, again, have a more benign problem diagnosis, which we've seen in multiple studies suggesting, you know, 70 to 80% reduction in hospitalization if given early to patients and into high-risk patients. I think you've given us a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, just hearing all these advances that have occurred over the past year and a bit. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping this is going to be the beginning of the end. I don't think any one of us ever thought, you know, we'd still be in this position two years later. But are there other other hopeful things that you could share or or other takeaways like in terms of the pandemic what do you think 
will be the takeaways moving forward? Vaccines have changed everything. And, and you know what, we have inequities that need to be addressed. But I'm incredibly proud that places like Canada and Ontario have done such incredible outreach, have reached such populations, have gotten to such high vaccine rates, that, you know, variants coming down in the future, yes, they may be disruptive, we may go through societal changes. But the vast, vast majority of people are now protected. And at least right. the data out there suggests, you know, uh, most people are still very protected from severe complications of COVID-19, even if they've gotten two of, of their vaccines. You know, third vaccines are better and, and certainly uh, for higher risk populations, they're very recommended. But again, the vast majority of people have protection from that. And it, it does make me hopeful because the barrier for us to, to kind of go to ground zero again is, is pretty, pretty high at this point. You know, therapeutics are here. There are more coming down the pipeline. Uh, you know, people are more scientifically engaged and, and really, really reticent to uh, pull networks together, which I don't think I've ever seen before. You know, lots of people that want to work together to make sure the health of their communities is generally, you know, as, as robust as possible, that, you know, responses in communities involve multiple stakeholders, that, you know, you have collaborations between groups that we're collaborating with. And, and so, yeah, I, there's a lot of hope here, right? This is not a roadmap from 2020 and 2019 in terms of how to deal with the pandemic. We now have pre-exposure therapy, we have post-exposure therapy with early therapy. Uh, you know, we can reach a lot of people and, and make sure that the suffering is, is limited. Uh, and, you know, I think, again, what happened with Omicron really woke up the world. And uh, and you've seen COVAX donations go up over the last two to three weeks. And so that is a good sign that many countries are committing to making sure that global vaccines are are uh, part of the, the strategy. And uh, and certainly, you know, with more vaccines being approved and, and more cheap vaccines and, and locally manufactured vaccines getting off the, the ground does give us hope that, you know, a lot of people at least have access to a full vaccine vaccine series in the next year and, you know, will be protected from the most severe complications of this virus. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, it makes me feel like there's some hope, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Like I, I know people, are, the first thing I saw in 2022 was Betty White's death. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I know this is an old, this is an omen. This is the worst, but I, I do feel hopeful that we will see some change. But one last question the social dynamic. So if anything has changed and anything that we've really realized other than vaccine inequity and just inequity and health inequity in general is the social aspect. I don't know what is wrong with people. I just want people to get along. Like, I think we just need to figure this out. And I think there's a lot of really great scientists out there and a lot of great physicians. And one of my biggest concerns is how do we how do we as healthcare providers work together what what is the message for 2022 for you know nurses physicians out there that might have differences of differences of opinion but really want the 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 same thing we want to see best patient out outcomes what would you say to them today yeah i mean i think it's it's worth it to always put yourselves in other people's shoes right if you fundamentally and philosophically disagree with people's you know judgments of where they are and what the next steps are in the pandemic really have to put themselves yourselves in their shoes first and that goes for even some of this counterculture stuff right uh you know you you want to be empathetic that other sides may have some truth to them that there are things that you know we can't explain or or mistakes that have been made throughout the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, and 
public trust sometimes isn't perfect. And so I think that's the number one thing is, is everyone comes from a different vantage point here. Everyone comes from their own personal risks and personal biases uh, and, and their personal scenarios and sees a window that many other people don't see. And, and I think the more we engage with that and say, hey, we may not all see eye to eye, but I think we all relatively recognize that we want people to not suffer in our own particular ways. And and you know certain things that we advocate for are for that you know to to alleviate suffering in certain groups. You know I think is is stage one. And I think you have to just continue to give people hope, right? Omicron came here and and it 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 really caused a lot of instability and a lot of fears in people that were kind of uh, brewing. And and again, you just have to continue to give people hope. There's lots of great hopeful data. Again, there's therapeutics. Vaccines seem to be holding up great against uh, hospitalization. You know there is more and more data coming out suggesting it is mild. They're not to say that it's not going to cause strain on our healthcare system and make healthcare right. workers go to the nth degree again. But at the same time, you have to give people hope to say, listen, like, you know, we're, we're going to get through this and most people will do fine. We just have to protect each other more than anything else. And again, as long as we continue with those messages and recognize people are getting increasingly fatigued and, and recognize when they're getting fatigued and give them that time and that space, you know, I think we're going to get through this with with everyone on on the same side, and and I think most people will be willing to sacrifice to make sure that we we do the best for everyone in that sense. Yeah, Zane, thank you so much for giving us this crash course in infectious diseases. I think I could have <laughs> spent eight hours reading this, but you just condensed it right down for me, and you've really made me feel hopeful and positive about 2022. And I do think that this is the year it's going to end. So thank you again for coming onto the Greeners podcast. Where can people find you if they want to follow you on Twitter or if you have other um, handles that you want to share? I, I really only use Twitter. I'm not a, mm-hmm. I'm too old to be using some of these other platforms. <laughs> no Instagram? <laughs> no, no, no TikTok ID. No TikTok. Oh, um, um, but yeah, at uh, ZChagla, uh, all one word, Z-C-H-A-G-L-A on, uh, on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you awesome. so much. No problem. All the best, guys.